Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we're going to get the first look at the Ford government's list of priorities today. What can we expect from the throne speech? We'll talk about that. Starting in September, masks will no longer be mandatory in Ontario schools, and not everybody's happy with that decision. We'll discuss it. And how are high interest rates taking effect on Canadian labor markets? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, of course, they uh, elected, actually re-elected uh, Ted Arnott, a Speaker of the House, uh, even though uh, Doug Ford had suggested he wanted somebody else up for the job, but uh, that's what the MP selected. But uh, we are going to get a first look at the Ford government list of priorities today. The throne speech is going to be delivered following the budget. No surprises really expected here. Tina Trujani has some details for us. The throne speech is the Ford government's game plan for the next four years, and it's expected some of the themes we heard during the election campaign will be repeated, such as rebuilding the economy from the pandemic and boosting various infrastructure projects. But opposition parties and unions representing healthcare workers will be listening for specifics to address the current staffing crisis, which has led to some emergency rooms having to temporarily close their doors over the last few weeks. They've been calling for the Premier to repeal Bill 124. That caps annual salary increases for nurses and other workers in the public sector, at 1%. Liberal MPP Dr. Adil Shamji says there's no quick fix, but the issue needs immediate attention. I think it's unrealistic to expect that we're going to turn it around in the next few days or weeks, frankly, even months. But what worries me and what worries our caucus is that we have not seen any improvement whatsoever. Tina Trajani, Global News. So what can we expect? And, and more importantly, I guess, what can we expect from the government with what we think is a crisis situation here? And that, of course, being the situation in Ontario hospitals. Joining us to talk about this is a Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Green Party, and of course, also the MPP uh, for Guelph. Uh, Mike, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, hey, Bill. My pleasure to be on and uh, talking about some really important issues. Well, I want to go right to the top of the list here, if I could. Now, I'm not so sure it's at the top of the government's list, but that's uh, the health care system and the crisis that's going on right now. Uh, a qu- couple of quick quotes. I know you've seen these, but I just want to bring up the, our listeners up to speed on this. Looking at what's going on here, uh, we've got people like uh, the Ontario Health Coalition, which uh, says that uh, the uh, Ontario hospitals are facing an unex- unprecedented level of stress because of what's going on. Uh, the president of the Ontario Hospital Association says unprecedented escalation in staff and pressures right now are working to develop temporary measures to help maintain services. We know that. But yesterday, the minister, uh, health minister, says, look, at this is this is not unprecedented. This always happens, and we're just dealing with this. And she seemed to indicate that the problem here is everybody's taking holidays. I'm, I'm, I'm flabbergasted by that, Mike. Oh, Bill, it's just completely outrageous. And you know, when in your lifetime, my lifetime, have we seen so many emergency rooms being closed because we don't have staff uh, to keep them open? I mean, the the minister has been uh, AWOL all summer. The premier has been AWOL all summer when it comes to addressing the health human resource crisis. I mean, for two years, the Ontario Greens, along with nurses associations and so many other health care providers, have been pushing this government to deliver on a retention and recruitment strategy for nurses and other frontline healthcare workers. They've completely ignored the problem, failed to address it, and now we're facing a crisis and the health minister has the audacity to say, oh, it's because a few nurses are taking a holiday. It's just completely outrageous. Well, I'm not a healthcare expert, but certainly I've, I've been a user. We all have it at one time or another. Uh, and as far as I can recall, Mike, nurses have always taken holidays, and we haven't had this crisis before. Well, exactly. I mean, here's the bottom line, Bill, is that when you have a government 
that um, has set up a situation where nurses and other frontline healthcare workers are overworked, underpaid, and underappreciated, you're going to start seeing people leave the profession, retire early, and that's exactly what's been happening, uh, especially given you know the heightened pressure uh, of, of the pandemic. And the government has simply ignored the problem and failed to address it. And part of it is is you know they've capped wages and benefits for healthcare workers at 1%, which is problematic, period, but especially when you have inflation at 8%. I mean, this is a, signif- a significant pay cut for nurses and frontline workers. And and the government is, you know, just ignoring it, refusing to repeal Bill 124, which would allow nurses and other healthcare workers to negotiate fair wages, fair benefits and better working conditions, which they desperately need, especially after the two last two years. Well, and there's, you know, for every inaction, I guess there's a reaction, just as there is for every action a reaction. Uh, and because of this inaction, we've got some hospitals, Mike, now paying double uh, the wage to nurses just to try to keep them on board during these rough times. So this is this is costing, and those are hospital institutions uh, that are going to have to dig into their pockets for this, right? So this is a bad situation that seems to be getting worse. Well, it's completely fiscally irresponsible for the government. One, there's clearly money in the system to be hiring nurses full-time with um, wages are less expensive than paying these private agencies that, you know, hire nurses and pay them uh, much higher wages that help fill in the gaps when uh, hospitals in particular are facing shortages. But the other thing that's completely outrageous is here we are, we're in a healthcare crisis. We have emergency rooms closing at unprecedented uh, numbers, and the government underspends its own healthcare budget by $1.8 billion. I mean, who the heck does that, you know, coming out of the worst global pandemic we've had in a century? And, you know, the ramifications of that in terms of the stress it's putting on our healthcare system, like who underspends their own budget? at such a critical time when we're facing a crisis in the system. So when we get into the House today, I mean, today's really, you know, it's, it's the speech and, and there'll be some reaction to that in, in the days and weeks ahead and eventually some debate, we hope, on this anyway. How do we get out of this mess, Mike? That's the bottom line I think most people are looking at here. Well, I think, first of all, the government has to send a signal to nurses and frontline healthcare workers that, you know, we're going to be there for you. We got your back. We're going to repeal Bill 124 and empower you to negotiate fair wages, benefits, and better working conditions. Next, the government's got to fast track uh, internationally trained healthcare providers, their accreditation. I mean, we have jurisdictions like New York State right next door to us that can do it much faster than in Ontario. You have organizations like the Registered Nurses Association saying there are 15 to 20,000 internationally trained nurses who could help fill the gaps uh, that we're experiencing in the healthcare system. And the government's actually got to spend the money it's budgeted to put put into the system to support the people who need the, to access that system, but also the doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers who, who provide that service. And quite frankly, the government's also got to look at ways of taking pressure off of our healthcare system, recognizing that the cost of living crisis is especially hurting the most vulnerable in our society. So doing things like investing in housing affordability, doubling ODSP rates so we don't force people to live in legislated poverty. Those are ways that we can 
help improve people's quality of life and take pressure off of our healthcare system. There's, there are other elements to this, too. Obviously, this is going to be a, a much more broad uh, speech from the throne, but the health care issues are certainly going to be a big part of that. Uh, there are some other concerns that are being raised, and you talk about uh, cost of living. And, and I know this is, a, a, you know, politics 101, Mike. Oftentimes, well, if we had more money from the federal government, that seems to be the, the answer to everything. And I'm not suggesting there's not an argument that the feds have to pony up more money. Uh, I think they have been delinquent in, in their responsibilities here, absolutely. But we've had ombudsmen after ombudsmen and, and others that have looked at this and say, yeah, that's part of the problem. But the other problem is how that money is spent once it gets to the provinces. Uh, how can we how can we move forward with a discussion about that? Because that doesn't seem to be something the government seems comfortable talking about. Well, I mean, uh, Doug Ford blames everybody but fails to look in the mirror when it comes to the challenges of we're facing. And so he, you know, he spent the last few days, he and his health minister, you know, either blaming the federal government, blaming nurses, blaming other people for a crisis that he's helped contribute to. And by all means, I am ready and willing to work across party lines with the premier, with the other opposition parties to put pressure on the federal government to step up and contribute to health care funding in the way that we need the federal government to do it. The bottom line is, is the premier then, one, has to spend the money, and he's underspending his own budget. So even if the federal government gives us the, the money that, that we deserve, is the premier actually going to spend it? And then secondly, it has to be spent in an effective way. And, you know, the fact that the premier seems to be refusing to meet with nurses organizations, doctors organizations and and others on the front lines who can help guide the most effective and fiscally responsible way of spending health care dollars, you know, makes me say to the premier, let's get your house in order first. And then, yes, let's all work together across party lines to demand that the federal government pay its fair share. I mean, because their response, is, as you well know, is that, look, we've already got the program in place. Uh, they made the announcement about, you know, trying to, to increase the number of, of, of foreign-trained nurses to come in here. Uh, that's all well and good. But, Mike, the stats we saw this week indicate that one in two nurses, uh, full-time nurses who are already employed here, are considering leaving the profession. Uh, they're walking out the back door. Uh, there's there's a small trickle going in the front door and almost a stampede leaving. I mean, this this is something that, that it's it's not going to work out mathematically. I mean, we need to retain uh, the people that are already there. And I'm not hearing a whole lot about what they're doing to, to get that accomplished. Well, you're absolutely right on that one, Bill. You know, I, sometimes I just get so frustrated. The premier likes to say, oh, you know, let's run government like a business. Well, I can tell you as a former small business owner, you want to retain your existing staff. It makes far more sense to retrain, re, uh, retain the staff you've already trained, that already know how to do the work, that already have relationships with people within the healthcare setting they're working. So for the premier to just fail to understand how important it is to retain the people you've already invested in makes absolutely no sense to me. And then when it comes to internationally trained uh, nurses in particular, I mean, for the government to say, hey, we've moved a few hundred uh, through through to accreditation. Well, you know, that's a good first start that they should have done uh, over two years ago when many of us were calling for it. But there are 15 to 20,000 internationally trained nurses in the province ready to do the work they were trained for. We just need to make sure they meet, you know, the criteria to work in Ontario. So why not fast track that accreditation so we can retain the people we have now 
and bring people in to support those nurses already in the system who have been working on short staff shifts over and over again for over two years now. And you raise a very legitimate issue when we talk about offshore training. Many of them are already here. <laughs> They're just waiting for accreditation. So, I mean, you know, that's it's not an immigration problem, as as, uh, as the premier mentioned last week. It's, it's an accreditation problem, and that's on them. Well, to me, just for the premier to suggest it's an immigration problem just shows like a gross misunderstanding of his own province or just, you know, once again, him wanting to deflect and blame others for the problems that Doug Ford has created. I got to I know that, you know, this is really going to be a reflection on Mr. Bethlen Falvey's budget that we talked about in the springtime before the election was actually called, the writ was dropped. Uh, but, you know, the emphasis on infrastructure and highway construction and, and rebuilding hospitals and roads and bridges, et cetera, uh, is going to cause employment. And we know that. And that's a good thing. I mean, we need jobs. We That's fine. Uh, but I'm wondering what balance here, Mike. And I'll give you a quick example of this. I was driving back from Blue Mountain this past weekend coming down Highway 10 uh, uh, towards Brampton. And there's this great big sign, you know, entering the green belt. And I figured, yeah, that's that's great. That's, and about 150 yards later is another great big blue sign that says future home of Highway 413. And I thought there's there's an incompatibility here uh, that, that I think should bother people. And, and to have those two signs there so close together, I think just understood that uh, even if you're in favor of, of another highway, and I don't want to get into that debate, it's location, location, location. I mean, is, is this going to be an issue? Is this going to be a, a debatable issue this term? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at polling numbers, you know, over 80% of Ontarians want to protect the Greenbelt. They don't want to see a highway built in the Greenbelt. So regardless of what people, what you personally, your listeners may, may think of additional highway construction, to build it in the Greenbelt makes absolutely no sense. And Bill, especially at a time, I mean, literally, the world's on fire right now. Um, you know, the extreme weather events we're experiencing, droughts, floods, wildfires, uh, extreme heat events. I mean, you know, some people are saying this is the hottest summer we've ever experienced, but sadly, maybe the coolest we ever experienced uh, moving forward. To not have the province be climate ready, to not protect the farmland that feeds us, that will be vital to making sure that we address food inflation, for example, to not protect the nature that protects us from extreme weather events like flooding, for example, uh, makes absolutely no sense from an economic, fiscal and quality of life perspective. Well, I know that you got to run. It's going to be a busy day for all of the people at the legislature right now. Uh, all I can say is, is if the basis of what they want to do in this term is going to be based on that budget that we heard about in the springtime. The reality here is the world has changed a whole lot in the last three months, and, and we're hoping that the government can show some flexibility on this. As always, Mike, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it as always, Bill. Th thanks for having me on. Take care. Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Green Party, uh, getting set for the speech from the throne uh, later on today at the Ontario Legislature. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Getting closer and closer to the school year. I know, I know, kids don't want to hear that. But, uh, uh, you know, just after Labor Day, of course, we're back at it again. And uh, one of the things that uh, we're told is going to come out of the speech from the throne today uh, is that uh, when they do return to school this uh, September, uh, the Ministry of Education has confirmed that students in Ontario schools will not be forced to wear masks during the fall semester. Sandy Salerno has some details. Parents won't have to add a stack of masks to the back-to-school shopping lists unless they want to. 
The province says it will be optional for students and staff this coming school year whether they want to mask up in the classroom. Same goes for visitors to the school and for kids taking the bus. A memo was sent out to the directors of education on Friday saying the decision to continue the no mask requirement, which came into effect last March, is based on advice from the Office of the Chief Medical Officer of Health. For those who choose to wear a mask, they will be provided to students upon request. Rapid tests will also remain available to school boards. Sandy Salerno, Global News. Interesting, and even some of the feedback uh, we've heard over the last couple of days when this was speculative uh, is well mixed, frankly. Some are saying, yeah, sure, I think it's safe now. Others are concerned about this. Uh, you know, we still have a wave going on here right now, and we were told that things are probably going to ramp up again in the fall. Uh, the ministry did say that uh, that uh, they have they've talked to a number of leading medical experts, including the Children's Health Coalition and medical officers of health before they made this decision. Now, mind you, I guess technically they didn't say whether or not these people and these organizations agreed with it, but they did say they talked to them. So is it the right move? And are there some concerns that we need to be cognizant of? Uh, to talk about this, so please to welcome back to the program, Thomas Tenkate. Uh, Thomas, a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, Thomas, a pleasure to have you back on the program. I hope you're doing well these days. Yes, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Let's talk a little bit about this. And there's always going to be some speculation and controversy, and I don't think we're ever going to get any sense of unanimity uh, when governments make policies about masking or not to mask. Uh, Are you comfortable with the provincial government's decision here? Well, I, I suppose if, if I sort of comment as a parent, I would say that, you know, I'm going to still encourage my own kids to be wearing masks when they're inside uh, at, at school. Uh, you know, how how uh, successful I'll be with, with that, I'm, I'm not really sure because we know, you know, it's sort of hard for kids to uh, keep doing it, particularly if you know, most of their friends aren't doing it. So, so that, you know, that's, that's really one of the, that's that's a big thing with with masks is is that even though they are effective in pre- both preventing transmission and 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 keeping and protecting the the wearer that they are you know one of a series of measures that really should all work together but but when we look at the various measures they are sort of probably one of the least preferred measures because of that issue of of human behavior and you know as humans we we generally tend not to use what we'd call personal protective equipment in the the most effective way that we should and so and particularly once you're talking kids so so i think you know it's it's uh, one of those factors that you know if you can uh i think it's a good idea but you know we also also mindful that uh there's a lot of uh factors that sort of decrease their effectiveness because because of uh you know the social setting as well as the uh uh, you know, just regular human behavior and, and difficulty in, in maintaining the, the use effectively. I'm glad you brought that up because I got an interesting email from a, a mother uh, who raised that very point or variations on that point anyway, that simply said, you know, I, I think my child, it was a daughter she was talking about, uh, should wear the mask. This was in elementary school, apparently. And uh, she says, but she's going to be ridiculed. And she says, I, you know, that's not really fair to my daughter because it happens. I mean, whether you like it or not. I mean, if she's the only one in the class, for instance, that's wearing it, uh, you know, people are going to make fun. I mean, they're going to make remarks and things of this nature. And and that may not be at the top of the list of the concerns, but it is still a concern because we're dealing with mental health issues and bullying issues and things like that. It's I'm not saying don't wear it because of that, but it's going to put some pressure on parents, I think, to make that decision and and 
suggest that, you know, it's like, you know, look, uh, Billy Gorsuch, you're going to wear a hat today because it's cold. No, none of the other guys are wearing hats. Well, you're going to wear one because I think, you know, it's a small thing, but it's still an important thing, especially in a, in a family situation. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's you know, it's definitely like you know, sort of like you're saying hats, and you know, sort of getting kids to wear hats during summer, and uh, you know, wearing sunscreen or, or uh, you know, you know, in in winter, you know, gloves and and scarves and and whatever. It's you know, you know, we know that 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 setting is you know, particularly if kids are feeling sort of uh, you know, doing something that makes them stand out. They they're often uh, you know sort of more reticent to be able to do that. They really want to fit in, and so so you know that you know I understand in some ways why the, why the uh, the province is saying you know we don't need to do that because uh, you know broad on the broader spectrum you know if you look at who's getting COVID, uh, kids are really at the at the uh, a lower risk. However, you know we do know that kids are getting COVID. And they are also uh, getting, uh, you know, the, the various symptoms of long COVID as well. What we still really, you know, it's that's still an early stage of trying to understand what that is and what the longer term implications are. And so, so you know, like from my perspective, if I, you know, if I'm thinking about trying to decide, would I want, you know, try and encourage and, and you know, ask my kids to wear masks when they go to school, you know, one one factor is really their 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 vaccination status and the vaccination status of of other family members, because what we you know the data is showing that that uh, unvaccinated uh, people are more likely you know double the double likely to to be in hospital and to and to also get COVID at the moment. So so really that vaccination status is one one thing that's really driving it. So so if you if your kids aren't vaccinated, then I think you know. I, I would definitely be wanting my kids to wear masks if my kids are vaccinated and, and you know, and I can sort of encourage them to do it. I, I would, but, you know, I'm, my sense of, you know, the risk level for them is, is, is much lower because of, because of being vaccinated. Whereas then there's also the other risk factors of, of other family members. And, you know, and particularly if other family members have, uh, you know, are immunocompromised or other have other medical conditions. You know, we we know with uh, kids and and any infectious agents, you know, uh, they bring everything home. And and do you want them to sort of be bringing stuff home and and potentially infecting you know people who are are at risk already? And so so I think those other factors. So so in a lot of ways, if the government isn't going to make it mandatory then i think you know each family needs to sort of look at what are the risk factors for our own family and do what we can to to protect ourselves well exactly and, and a lot of the risk factors that we talked about well the pandemic was still raging and, and uh are still there i mean as you said you know the, the child may be vaccinated it may not actually show but they could bring it home and and we have a lot of people in multi-generational homes right now because of housing crises and uh, immigration problems. There's a whole series of things there that are impacting that. Uh, and you have to worry about that. But there's a couple of other things I wanted to ask you about, Thomas, if I could, because, again, these are things that uh, I'm not saying we've let our guard down, but we seem to have figured, hey, we're over the worst of this now. It's still there, but it's not as, as, as serious as it might have been. And I, I'm not so sure that's the right mindset to take. First of all, we don't really know how many people have COVID right now because we're not testing anymore. So it's it's a ballpark or really a guesstimate as to how many people are getting it. And and the other element to this is something that you've talked to us about in the past. It's summertime. First of all, the kids aren't in school. 
Uh, so they're not in congregate settings, uh, and most of the time outdoors. So we expect that there's going to be a, a drop anyway. But when they get back into a classroom, uh, is there a concern about a number of, of, of risk factors uh, starting to come right back at them, including things like ventilation systems, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact that they're very close together, whether it's 10 or 20 of them or something like that, does that increase the risk, if, especially if there's somebody who's unvaccinated in that group? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, once you're talking indoors and in uh, in settings where you've got uh, a number of, you know, crowding as you've, you know, what you'd say in a classroom, you've got kids clo working close together. Uh, you know, they're, they're all factors that really increase risk of transmission. Uh, and so, you know, like I like personally for my kids, you know, I, at the end of uh, end of the previous year, I, I said, I'm happy for you not to wear the mask outside because of there's you know a lot of good airflow and and, and uh, you know you're not as close normally to the other kids. But once you're inside, you know I really want you to keep wearing your mask. And so so I think you know that you know definitely uh, you know indoors and when wearing masks is I think is still still an important thing. And and you know even though the the government is saying that uh, you know it's really voluntary for staff as as well you know we know that teachers are really uh, real role role models and so so i would really encourage teachers to still wear masks because that will then you know give permission and and encourage kids to wear masks inside as well and from a health and safety occupational health and safety perspective if i was the you know uh you know running schools i would still require my staff to to wear masks when they're inside from to to protect them as well as well, so I think it's you know teachers wearing uh, masks uh, is as a, from a role model perspective and, and a support perspective for kids who who want to wear masks is, is is a really important thing as well as you know protecting the the the, uh, the teachers as well. And and the, the numbers here, I think we have to talk about. You know, we, we, they say that. It, I know that they say we've peaked at the seventh wave, uh, but they were also telling us, of course, the experts are saying there's probably going to be an eighth wave in September when everybody gets back into the situation. We don't know how severe it's going to be. Uh, we don't know, uh, you know, which which level of the virus or what, you know, morphate of the virus is going to be in situations like that. Uh, but it, it hasn't gone away, though. And I guess the concern a lot of parents are, are indicating toward me is that I don't want my kid to be one of the ones that's going to suffer as a result of this. In other words, another backlash from this. But and, and I'm noticing anecdotally, I don't know what you've seen, Thomas, over the last couple of weeks. I'm seeing more and more people, adults and kids, wearing masks, uh, you know, going in grocery stores, whereas you know, six, eight weeks ago, that wasn't the case. I, I think there's a concern right now about what might happen in September. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think I think we we do need to still be cautious uh, and and be mindful that you know, you, the, you know, the pandemic isn't over from you know, we've definitely at a at a much lower level than what we've had in in the past in in particular you know, in comparison to the previous previous peaks, but the the numbers are still sufficient that they they're uh, you know we have uh, you know a large number of people still getting sick and and it's and it's really still impacting the the healthcare system, and, and uh, we know that 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 impact on the healthcare system is then having having flow flow on effects through through emergency rooms and, and other other areas uh particularly around staffing and so so you know i i definitely you know I, from from my perspective to you know if you're trying to manage risk you you really want to uh still encourage people to be to be wearing masks and you know i suppose i've uh you know previously uh i've sort of said i think that they should be 
in in higher risk settings actually having mask mandates uh still uh but and i know that i've got got a bit of criticism for that but but i think if you know if you look at what where the risk level is at the moment uh and uh you know how you know what is a you know reasonably effective and low cost and uh easy measure to do then then wearing masks is is you know still fits all of those bills dis- despite the uh you know some of the you know aspects of of people not wearing them uh to 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 make them a, as effective as they could but but it's still a measure that that i think uh is is, is a good one to use and and in you know in definitely in, in a number of settings I, I still think you know even though they're they're a uh, they're voluntary i think i i you know if i was in charge i'd, I'd make them uh, mandatory but uh you know i know that uh we're you know the the general community is really tired and really wants to just move forward but uh you know the the pandemic is isn't wanting to let us do that at this stage and as you mentioned i mean we're talking about people that may still be high risk uh, and we talked in the past about being people that are have been taking chemotherapy etc there are a lot of kids that are at high risk that are suffering from things like autoimmune diseases and others that, that don't present i mean you could you know walk down the street and say i did that the child doesn't look ill but i mean they're, they're dealing with these things uh they're gonna have to be forced i would think in a, in a setting like that to wear a mask whether they like it or not Oh, yeah, definitely. I think, uh, you know, parents really need to sort of be mindful that, uh, you know, the risk isn't isn't over for kids uh, and and they, you know, they need to do whatever they can to try and protect their kids as much as possible still. So, uh, you know, and mask wearing is still, a, I think, an effective, effective measure. Uh, and, uh, you know, and and I th- I'd like to think that, you know, we've we've had enough time that uh, people just uh, more accepting of, of people wearing masks, even if, if, you know, it's a lower proportion of people. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's still one of those things that if you, you know, if you are wearing a mask uh, in, in some settings, you really are starting to stand out. But, but I agree that, I, you know, I have started noticing, uh, you know, mask wearing in- increasing because I think there, there is a, despite, you know, them, the uh, the government indicating that we're at that uh, you know we've we've peaked. I think that you know we we have peaked on some measures, but on other measures, uh, when we look at the various criteria, that, that you know then then they then they're not dropping. So so I suppose because we're not doing as you said before, because we're not doing that ongoing testing in regard to the the the, the really high level of testing. We have to sort of make a judgment based on a broad range of criteria. A lot of those criteria are starting to dip. Uh, or, or plateau, uh, whereas others are, are still, uh, you know, going up slightly as well. So, you know, it, it's really a judgment call of whether or not we really have have peaked or not. And so, so I think we have to sort of be mindful that uh, you know it's an ongoing situation, and, and uh, you know it's it's a situation that you know can change week by week still. And so, you know, September yeah. is you know it's close, but it's uh, you know we could be in a re- reasonably different situation by then as well. Uh, and as you're a dad and I'm a dad, uh, best advice here is to have that conversation in the next couple of days. Don't wait till the night before the first day of school, because uh, it could be uh, a rather interesting discussion. Anyway, Thomas, as always, appreciate your time. Thanks so much for this today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks very much, Bill. Have a great day. Take care. Thomas Tenke, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto's Metropolitan University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about the economy. Let's talk about government policy in the economy and what economists are saying we need to do to get rid of uh, the problems that we're facing, including things like inflation and interest rates, etc. 
Uh, well, with inflation topping 8% right now, uh, putting your money under your mattress might not be a bad thing because interest rates looks like they're not going down anytime soon. And there are some implications. Don Kelly has some details. Anyone with money in the bank is seeing their savings drip away at the fastest rate on record because interest rates for savings accounts are languishing at about 1%. It's a sharp contrast to the last time inflation ran this hot. Back in 1981, inflation peaked at over 12%. Bank accounts were paying out 19% interest. Economists say part of the problem is lower competition in the banking sector, which means banks don't have much incentive to change rates unless they have to. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. Strong medicine, and, it, and it's difficult. And, and we were told that there were going to be some repercussions and some long-term concerns about some of these things. And then there were other economists that said, no, this is what we need to do, uh, and it's not going to have an impact on the economy. The economy is doing quite well. This is just to try to slow things down a tad. Well, uh, new labor force data from Stats Canada confirms that Canada's economy is slowing down sharply as a result of incre- these aggressive interest rate hikes that were begun by the Bank of Canada back in the springtime. Uh, and that's problematic for a whole lot of reasons. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Jim Stanford. Jim is an economist and director of the Center for Future Work. Uh, Jim, a pleasure to have you on the program. I hope you're doing well these days. Thank you very much for having me, Bill. You have every right to say I told you so, and as, as some <laughs> others who said, don't go down this road, it's going to hurt. And uh, Stats Canada is backing you up right now. I, I know you're not glad that you're you were right no, but uh certainly it's, not, it's, yeah. it, it's it's you don't like to say i told you so when people are hurting because of it but uh you're right bill the numbers are very clear that uh, canada's economy and labor market are slowing down sharply we've lost jobs significant number of jobs for two months uh, in a row and uh, there's other signs as well slowing uh, gdp growth uh, eroding consumer confidence so uh, most economists now, I think, are of the view that uh, we are going to experience some kind of a recession, hopefully not a long, deep one. And uh, to me, that's, again, confirmation that the Bank of Canada has overdone it here. Well, and as one individual characterized it to me yesterday, uh, they, they enacted these policies to try to fix one problem. Uh, the data so far suggests that it's not working, but they've created another problem. The theory behind raising interest rates to control inflation uh, generally assumes that the inflation arose because of uh, too much spending power in our domestic economy here in Canada. That's kind of the textbook storyline. And in that case, you raise interest rates, you make it more expensive to borrow. Uh, consumers spend less, businesses spend less, unemployment goes up a bit, and that cools everything off. The problem this time, Bill, is the inflation we're seeing isn't uh, of the textbook variety. I mean, we had a pandemic. That's not in any textbook and uh, some of the unique impacts from it, including the disruption in international supply chains for things like semiconductors and cars, uh, the energy price shock, of course, that we're looking at, even some of the changes in uh, consumer buying patterns. You know, when when we were all uh, under lockdown, we, we couldn't travel, we couldn't go out and eat, so we bought uh, building supplies to renovate our basement with, right, or home electronics, and that pushed up the prices of those products and kind of got the inflation ball rolling. So these are all very unique factors, and most of them, frankly, are temporary. We're already seeing a reversal of some of the price hikes we've seen in international commodities and shipping costs and so on. But uh, the Bank of Canada and others, I think because they they were more concerned with looking tough on inflation than really thinking through the causes of this inflation, they went down the textbook response. So they've uh, increased interest rates four times and several, not all central banks, but most central banks around the world are doing the same. 
the U.S. economy has already uh, shrunk two quarters in a row. That is the technical definition of a recession, and they're our biggest uh, trading partner. So you know, there's no doubt that uh, we're in for some rocky times in the next little while. But but and again, I don't. You know, you you mentioned this, and so many others did at the same time. But you just touched on, I think, one of the very cogent points here is okay yeah things are not looking good and it's this is not just a canada problem other countries are doing exactly the same thing and you say and and i've heard this phrase from some of them jim we're doing this by the book and as you said there's no chapter about pandemic in the book mm. uh, so you know they're, they're trying to use old solutions to a new problem and it's just it's not a fit it's a square hole in a round peg yeah that's a good way to describe it uh uh, Bill, and um, you know the the impact of higher interest rates on some of those unique factors is is hard to to tell. In fact, in some cases, it could be perverse. You know, if it's a, a problem of supply chains being disrupted, what do high interest rates do to fix supply chains? If anything, frankly, they make them worse because it's going to make it more expensive for whether it's businesses to invest in new capacity, which we need, or governments to invest in new infrastructure. You know, get things moving better at the ports and the railways and so on those all become more expensive when you've got higher interest rates. So uh, another uh, factor that I saw uh, that worried me in last week's uh, labor force numbers, uh, we've seen that now since March, when the Bank of Canada started increasing interest rates, uh, we've seen a significant decline in labor force participation in Canada. So that means that the proportion of Canadians who are either working or actively seeking work is shrinking. I think in part because people are you know, people are, are getting worried about what, you know, what types of jobs are going to be out there. Even though the unemployment rate is low, uh, participation is falling. And in essence, uh, we've seen about 225,000 Canadians leave the labor market since March. But the, again, that's not what you want. If you've got supply chain problems and some companies report labor shortages, you want as many workers as you can possibly get in the labor market. So uh, in some ways, this this cure is worse than the disease that that, uh, that we were facing in terms of this unique outburst of post-pandemic inflation. But didn't those labor numbers be served as part of their explanation or their justification for doing this? That I know this is going to sting here and it might hurt a little bit here, but look, you know, those employment numbers are great. That's going to be the foundation for this. Now they're starting to erode. Yeah, no, certainly. And I think <clears throat> honest in, in their honest moments, even the Bank of Canada would admit that this current inflation has nothing really to do with the labor market. The data is clear that uh, wages were growing very slowly uh, and much um, much behind the rise in inflation. So uh, in, in that regard, you can't say that the labor market was the problem, but the labor market is still going to bear the brunt of the of the so-called solution. And it will bring down inflation. There's no doubt about that. Uh, the question is there, you know, there's going to be a lot of collateral damage uh, in the meantime. And how do we address something like this? I mean, <laughs> It, it's like you see the house is listing, and it certainly needs to, to be, you know, shored up right now. Uh, and they're not doing anything about it, but eventually it's going to lean too far, and you're going to have to have some major repairs. Is 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 the government policy, and, and for that matter, the Bank of Canada policy, putting us into a situation where, as you say, we 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 seem to be moving towards a recession. Uh, there was some speculation, uh, you know, even three or four months ago, Jim, that that maybe it's not going to happen. Maybe we can dodge the bullet here. Uh, because of the numbers you're suggesting, and these are Stats Canada numbers, by the way, people. I don't want people to think, oh, that's just those labor unions tweaking the numbers. They all do that. No, it's not. It's Statistics Canada that came up with this data. But is is this putting us on a fast track to a recession then by the end of the year? 
Yeah, there's. Uh, I think uh, uh, um, we're we're running out of runway, if you like, in terms of that elusive soft landing that uh, everyone was hoping for. You know, the idea that they cool down the economy enough to get inflation down, but not so much that we end up in recession. And uh, the the international signs uh, um, are pointing towards a, a recession, particularly in the U.S. case, of course. Um, so, um, you know, I think the the key lesson from for me from all this, Bill, is that we have to get a bit more um, multidimensional in how we understand inflation and what we do about inflation. Um, you know, for a long time, we had this view, inflation was the, the responsibility of the Bank of Canada. The Bank of Canada has one tool, one big sledgehammer, that's called the interest rate that goes up or down for everyone in the whole economy. And, it, and it's uh, indiscriminate. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you're investing to do something useful, like build new housing or grow a business or uh, something completely unproductive like speculating in cryptocurrency or uh, or the property market uh, either way the interest rate uh, goes up or down so it's it's a blunt tool and we relied on it almost uh, single-handedly for the last couple of decades and i think that the lesson of the current experience is inflation can come about for many different reasons not just one and we need many different tools not just one to deal with it. And there's other things that we could be doing right now, such as trying to improve uh, supply chains, trying to make sure that low-income people uh, keep up with inflation so that they aren't paying a, an unfair price, looking at some of the uh, profit margins that we're seeing in the energy industry or the supermarket chains and so on, who've taken advantage of inflation to increase prices too much. Those are some of the things that should supplement what the Bank of Canada does in order to bring down inflation that has a more complex set of causes than the usual textbook story. Because once we start down this rabbit hole, I mean, it, 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 we sometimes are our own worst enemies in situations like that. I mean, when things tighten up like this and wages don't keep up with inflation, and they, are, they aren't now, people tend to hold on to whatever money they've got. And they're not putting it back into the economy, which makes a, a bad situation that much worse, doesn't it? Oh, it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, you're quite right. The, the fear that th that times uh, are going to get tough can bring about the tough times because people batten down the hatches uh, and they they hang on to money instead of spending it. And the same goes for business. Uh, again, this is where the uh, the contractionary medicine, when the problem arose from supply chain disruptions and inadequate capacity in key industries, the, the contractionary medicine is perverse because uh, companies look out and say, well, if there's a recession coming, no way am I going to invest in an improved supply chain right now. And that's, those are exactly the decisions being made right now in corporate boardrooms uh, around the world, uh, which means we're going to end up with uh, uh, supply chain problems that are still there when we come out of the next recession. So, uh, again, I think uh, in many ways this approach is self-defeating. But most central banks, not all of them, the, the Europeans have uh, gone easier, the Japanese have gone easier, but uh, certainly Canada, America, Britain, Australia, uh, really ratcheting up the interest rates in line with that conventional um, medicine story. I mean, if I'm an investor uh, and I got a whack of money and I want to, okay, let's, let's, let's do something with this. Uh, what is my my motivation for investing in a company right now? Because you want a return on the investment. I mean, that's how the the, the cycle works. We get that, uh, but that's only going to happen if that money that I that company I invest in expands or you know do, introduces new product lines or whatever the case might be, so that there's an increase in profits. And we all we all benefit from that. 
That's not going to happen now uh, because of what they're doing with interest rates. Uh, the company can't afford to expand. They can't really afford to do new product lines. I mean, everything right now is in a holding pattern. Uh, yet, you know, the, the, the interest rate and the policy instituted by the, the Bank of Canada here is, is hold, keeping us in that holding pattern. And, and there's a kind of a collective irrationality to it. Like one one individual company might say, you know what, I, I, I think we should uh, we should move on. We should keep expanding. Uh, I'm going to be more optimistic for the long term. But if other companies aren't investing, then uh, you don't get enough momentum to grow the whole economy. On the other hand, if the uh, businesses in on mass decided, yeah, we're going to move ahead and invest, we're going to expand capacity, we're going to fix those supply chains instead of tolerating them, um, then you could actually get the economic growth that validates the individual investment decisions that were made. So this this kind of herd mentality that starts happening, um, and, and, but right now it's headed in the wrong direction. Well, it seems as if, you know, the, the, the game plan here, not stated, but certainly implied, is we're going to do this, we're going to make things get really bad, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll try to fix it. Uh, how about we don't make things real bad, uh, and that way the fix isn't going to have to be as, 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 as you know, tenuous as, as it needs to be ordinarily like this they, they they're digging a hole and then they're complaining that there's too deep a hole yeah why why didn't we take an easier approach in in the first place part of, part of the problem here is the the bank of canada and others uh are really really wedded to this idea of protecting their quote-unquote credibility with uh, financial markets and um they feel uh in a way they feel bad that they were not faster off the mark in combating the inflation as it started after the uh, original reopening, after the pandemic. Uh, their view, and I actually think their view was was right and still is, is that it would be temporary inflation from some of those uh, unique factors uh, after the pandemic, including the supply chains and the energy price. I think that assessment is still valid and we're already seeing the energy prices come down, uh, many international commodities come down, shipping costs coming down. So there's lots of reason to believe that this is a, a temporary side effect of the pandemic. Yet, uh, the bank still says, but nevertheless, um, we're going to uh, tighten rapidly. We're going to make people pay who didn't cause the problem, namely you know, those workers who lost jobs in the last uh, two, two months and, and more to come. Because what's more important than anything else in their books is uh, their credibility as inflation fighters. And sticking to the, they have a target of 2% inflation and they're going to get it there come hell or high water, in essence, is what they're saying. So in, in a way, I think they've drunk their own Kool-Aid a bit too much. And um, we should be um, a little bit more tolerant of some of the unique factors uh, coming out of the pandemic that uh, have created the inflation that we've experienced. Well, while doing what we can to protect Canadians who need it the most, particularly low incomes, uh, against the effects of that inflation while it lasts. Every time we see these things like goals, like 2%, as, as you mentioned, for inflation, uh, the concern always, I know we got about a minute left there, is, is about whether or not that's an arbitrary number or there's some mathematical uh, justification for it. I will, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Jim, I'm glad you're staying on this because it's a very concerning problem for an awful lot of people. Uh, and, uh, you know, we always need to pay attention to what's happening at street level, not just up in the hill on Ottawa there. Uh, always a great pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you very much, Bill, for having me.
Take care. Jim Stanford, who's an economist and, of course, director of the Center for Future Work. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.